Welcome to the podcast of Eden Worship Center, connecting people to God and each other. In our current series, The Five Solas, we are exploring the central truths that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, and that we stand on the scriptures alone as our final authority. For more information, visit our website at edenworshipcenter.co. All right. Well, happy Mother's Day. Dad, happy Mother's Day. Hey, this morning we're going to continue our uh, series on the five solas, uh, specifically sola gratia. In Latin means grace alone. Pastor Harold started last week by talking about the uh, imago Dei, the, uh, the fact that we were made in God's image. So this week, we're going to continue on, and, and how this came about is Jason texted me a couple months ago, and he asked uh, which one of the sermons I thought I might want to preach, and I said, Total depravity sounds good. Uh, I feel like I'm uniquely qualified to preach about that. Uh, I've done quite a bit of sinning. In fact, this week, I uh, did some extra sinning to prepare for the sermon. I'm just kidding. I tried not to, guys. No, the truth is, I felt like once I realized that today was Mother's Day, I kind of got the short end of the stick. Because I get to tell... All you mothers, especially mine, how wicked you really are. Which is interesting because when I was growing up, I really thought that my mother never, ever sinned. I thought she was very perfect. But as I grew up, I realized I was far from the truth. She was such a wicked mother. No, I'm just kidding. She was a great mom. I love you. All right. So here's the deal. I feel like I need to even define the word depravity because we don't use it very often in our language today. So when I say depravity, what I mean is moral corruption, sickness, like a brokenness and a bentness towards sin. And and the idea is that we have such a bentness towards sin and we're so corrupt that it's going to take grace on God's part to save us. It's going to take a gift from God to make us his own. So I assume uh, based on a little knowledge that there's probably four people in this room. There's uh, a couple of you who are thrilled to death that we're talking about total depravity this morning because you love Calvinism. I imagine there's another few of you who hate the fact that we're talking about it because you despise Calvinism. And I imagine most of you don't know what I'm talking about at all, and then the rest of you couldn't care less, and you just want to know how soon we're getting out of here. So I figure that's, that's where we're at, so I would like to, to if you've got a big objection to it, uh, just bear with me to the end. Don't, don't let go right now, because I plan to actually just read lots of scripture, so that's, that's the big plan. Um, and in fact, I just... 
want to clarify that what I'm talking about when I say total depravity, I'm actually talking about your state before you became a Christian. So if you're saved, you are no longer totally depraved, but you were, right? So if you're a Christian, remember as I'm talking about this, that I'm talking about who you used to be. And if you're not a Christian, I'm talking exactly to where you are. I'm talking to you, and at the end, I will say, but you don't have to be anymore, right? That can end today. So keep that in mind. All right, we're going to jump in here a little bit. So total depravity, uh, some people have defined it probably even a little better by calling it total inability. The, The general idea is we have been so damaged by sin that we have been so warped and corrupted by sin that we are completely unable to do, number one, anything good, and number two, choose God. We're unable. We don't have what it takes on the inside to pick God. Let me tell you here what the Westminster Confession of Faith says about total depravity. Man, by his fall into a state of sin, hath wholly lost all ability of will to any spiritual good accompanying salvation. So as a natural man, being altogether averse from good and dead in sin, is not able by his own strength to convert himself or to prepare himself thereunto. I know there's some big words there. But basically, we may do some good things, but we can't be good. Our depravity has affected the core of our being. And we're just bad at, our, at the very heart of who we are. It's not that we're as bad as we could be. I mean, we could do worse things. We could harm each other more. We could do things that cause more destruction. But we can't be good. That's the idea. Listen to this quote from Benjamin Joff's line in a cage. If a lion is in a cage, you put before him a bowl of meat and a bowl of wheat. Which one will the lion choose to eat? The lion will always choose the meat. He would never choose the wheat. Because lions don't eat wheat, that is who they are. That's, that's us. We put God in front of us, and we put sin in front of us. We're picking sin every time because we're lions, and lions eat meat. That's the deal. All right, so... Where did the doctrine come from? We find at least traces of it in the early church fathers, in the writings, and Augustine started writing about it before 400 AD, uh, talking about original sin, and then the reformers um, in the 1500s clarified it even further and, and really put it out there for us to make it clear. So I've got some quotes here from the Reformation. Uh, John Calvin said regarding this, as we are all vitiated, which I had to look up that word, it means spoiled. As we are all spoiled by sin, we cannot but be hateful to God. Martin Luther said it like this. He said, therefore, Paul in this passage lumps all men together in a single mass and concludes that So far from being able to will or do anything good, they are all ungodly, wicked, and ignorant of righteousness and faith. 
And then we'll jump ahead a few hundred years to Spurgeon. He says it like this. As the salt flavors every drop in the Atlantic, so does sin affect every atom of our nature. So that was, you know, he was pretty good at saying stuff. So here's, here's the big idea. Um, I love... I love reading things that old dead people have said, right? And I think it's really cool that we can find traces of it from a couple thousand years ago. We can hear what the Reformers had to say about it. But at the end of the day, if God doesn't believe in total depravity, I don't care what everybody else says, right? So where we're going next is to the Bible, and that's where we're going to stay the rest of the time, okay? So my aim is to give us eight reasons from scripture that you cannot please God and that you cannot be reconciled to him aside from his grace. Number one is up on the screen. You have a new wicked nature. Last week Harold talked about how when God created us, he created, created us in the image of God. We were created with some of the same characteristics as God and we were created good and perfect. We didn't sin. We didn't want to sin. We didn't know what sin was. <clears throat> but then in Genesis chapter 3, uh, Satan came and tempted Eve with the apple. And uh, she ate, and Adam stood beside her and watched. And with that very simple act of rebellion, they wrecked humanity. They wrecked everything. You know, it's kind of, we're going to end with a but God verse in Ephesians 2 at the end. This is kind of the but man beginning here, right? But man train wrecked the whole thing. We ran, we ran amok in the very beginning. God created us to live <clears throat> with him in unity and in community, and we were, he invited us to enter into this Trinitarian love that he had enjoyed with himself forever backwards, right? Forever, God had been living in this ununderstandable, incomprehensible uh, state of loving himself and bring glory to himself. He creates man to enter into that same thing. We were created by God for God to love him and adore him and in Genesis 3, that all gets broken. God said, God told Adam and Eve that when they ate of this tree, that they would die. And they died. And we died with them. That's, that's the idea here. The fall fractured everything. And I've got some verses here that we're going to turn to. So you're welcome to turn to these. I've got like 300 scriptures. Uh, not really. I was just kidding. Come on. Uh, we've got a few. You're welcome to turn to them. If you don't want to, they're going to be up on the screen. So first one is Psalms 51, verse 5. It says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. We're going to go on to Psalm 58, 3. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. The next 
We're going to jump all the way to the New Testament, to Romans. And a couple of verses here. Romans chapter 5. Romans 5, 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. We're going to skip down to and hit verse 19 now as well. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. So we see here, guys, that uh, we were made sinners at our birth, when we were born, when we were still inside our mother's wombs, we were corrupt and came out sinning. And I really, like if you don't believe that, that people are corrupt from the beginning, I would invite you to come hang out at our house with our kids, right? They're horrible to each other. I mean, they're sweet and they're cute and we like them but they're evil. They're evil. And they were like that from the word go. They only cared about themselves. They do things to each other that Brandy and I don't do to each other. Right? We don't take things from each other and then hit each other. Right? They didn't learn that. That's not a learned behavior. It's something that dwells inside of them. And it comes out. Let me read for you the property laws of a toddler. Uh, I think this will help. Number one, if I like it, it's mine. Number two, if it's in my hand, it's mine. Number three, if I can take it from you, it's mine. Number four, if I had it a little while ago, it's mine. Number five, if it's mine, it must never appear to be yours in any way. Number six, if I'm building something, all the pieces are mine. Number seven, if it looks like mine, it's mine. (laughs) Number eight, if I saw it first, it's mine. Number nine, if you're playing with something and you put it down, it becomes mine. (laughs) Number ten, if it's broken, it's yours. (laughs) We've got a quote here from the theologian Professor Moriarty and Sherlock Holmes. He said, you're not fighting me, Mr. Holmes. You're fighting the human condition. Hidden in the unconscious is an insatiable desire for conflict. Man, isn't that the truth? I mean, we laugh about it in our kids, but the same reason that we look at our kids and see this is the same reason we can look at prison and see the same behavior going on, right? They just may not have been able to manage it as well. The last verse I want to read in this section is in Ephesians 2. We're going to go ahead and read 1 through 3 because... One is where we're going next. So I'm going to go ahead and read Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, 
following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. The idea here is we have traded the good, perfect nature that God gave us for a wicked nature. Again, the idea is not that we do bad things, it's that we are bad. And I know there's a big push in our society today to say things like humankind is basically good. You know, we do the right things most of the time. And I would push back against that with all of my might. And I would say, we do the right things on the outside. But we don't do the right things like in the case of abortion, right? We can do some right things, but it's not like we always do the right thing. At our very core, we're corrupt. And as we read in Ephesians 2, 1, that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. We're dead. That is our state. Our state is wicked and dead. You can go ahead and put Ephesians 2, 1 up there, guys, if you want. It's the next one. Not that you still live there if you're a Christian, but that is who you were. And dead people, I don't know if you've been around many dead people, uh, they don't have much to offer. Right? They don't, uh, they don't do the right things. They don't, they don't love God. They just lay there and are dead. They are useless in regards to doing something good, to doing something of value. They, they just lay there and rot. That's the idea, that we were dead. We had no hope. We had no possible means of escape. If you remember the story of Lazarus, he was a friend of Jesus who got sick and he died, and Jesus waited until the old King James says he stinketh before he went to see him. Now, he did that on purpose because he wanted to uh, show the world who he was. But when Lazarus was in the tomb, Jesus went to the tomb and he said, Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus didn't have much to do with Jesus calling him forth, right? Uh, his, his job was being dead. That's all he was doing. That's all he was able to do. And I think the scripture is clear here that that's all we are able to do is be dead. We're dead to the things of God. We're dead to the possibility of transformation. We're dead to the idea of loving God. We are without any hope unless he would do something. Next, our new wicked dead nature only loves to do the wrong thing. We're going to go all the way back to Genesis for this one. Genesis 6-5. Genesis 6-5 was 
God recognizing what was going on on the earth before the flood. This is what he says about humankind. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's that's a pretty big indictment of mankind, is it not? That every intention of our heart is only evil continually. Robert Murray McChain says it like this. He said, The seed of every sin known to man is in my heart. We're not all Ted Bundy who would do atrocious things to mankind, but we're all about three steps away from that. Aside from God's grace, Harold Gingrich is Ted Bundy, right? And I, I don't say that, I, I don't mean anything evil to Harold by that, but I'm saying, I, I actually am saying the opposite. I'm saying if you take the person in your life that you think has the greatest ability to follow God's rules because of lots of practice, even he, aside from God's grace, could have become Ted Bundy, right? The idea is the, the nature of man is so polluted by sin, it's so corrupted that the, the sky is the limit, except the opposite of the sky. Hell is the limit. There is nothing constraining us except God. And he does that on occasion. We read in the Old Testament where he would show up and do things like say, I'm not going to let you sin against me. I'm not going to let you sleep with Abram's wife. And we're like, ah. All right. Romans 8. We're going to go back to Romans, guys. Romans 8, 6 through 8. It says this. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. We, as non-Christians, are hostile in our nature to God. You ever met an atheist who is hostile? Right? they don't believe in God and they're mad about it? That was all of us. They verbalized it, but that was all of us. We, our very nature is so against who God is and everything he's about that we're hostile towards him and we can't do what he says. Let me read that again. It does not, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. It cannot. We cannot submit to God's law. Though we try. Matt Chandler says about that, 
Without a heart transformed by the grace of Christ, we just continue to manage external and internal darkness. Isn't that true? Right? Self-help books are the largest section in any uh, library. Because we know we're broken, and we know we need fixed, so we try, you know, we try these four steps, and those eight steps, and these three steps, and the truth is, you're going to manage external and internal darkness. You're going to manage doing the wrong thing and thinking the wrong thing until the day you die, except for God doing something. The next one is, we have exchanged the glory of God for a lie. Our new dead nature that loves to do the wrong thing exchanges even the truth about God. So we're going to flip backwards just a little bit in Romans to Romans 1 to talk about this. I've got 125 up on the screen. I'm actually going to read 22 through 32 here. Claiming to be wise... Nope, I'm going to start at 21. Pardon me. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts to impurity gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, listen to this, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. That's a, that one hurts a little bit, right? That one stings the human race. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. And they exchange the truth about God for a lie. What is known about God and what he's done for us should be plain to us. But because of our wicked nature, because our eyes are blinded, we can't even see. And the truth is we suppress the truth about God in everything food that we eat is not supposed to be a God that we worship. It's supposed to be something that points us to the God that we worship. Sports that we love to watch are supposed to cause us to turn to God and say, 
this is awesome. You created people uh, to do this, and I, you know, I'm enjoying this game, and Notre Dame is winning. I mean, it's a great thing. Sex is supposed to cause us to look to our God and say, you created this for us? This is incredible, right? All of these things are supposed, are supposed to cause us to look to God and worship him and adore him and love him. That's why he created these things. And yet we turn it, we twist it, we exchange the truth and say, no, this is, this is the end. This is everything that I'm living for is the sport. Everything I'm living for is food. Everything I'm living for is whatever. Whatever good thing you want to put there. But if you take a good thing and make a God thing out of it, that good thing is no longer good. Right? Next. And this one is going to be... uh, this one's going to be harmful to you. But it'll be good harm. It'll be good harm. The good things that we do are not impressive to God. Let me read something for you that I got from Theopedia. I wouldn't necessarily go there uh, expecting to always find the right doctrine, but in this case it was very good. Total depravity does not mean, however, that people are as bad as possible Rather, it means that even the good which a person may intend is faulty in its premise, false in its motive, and weak in its implementation. And there is no mere refinement of natural capacities that can correct this condition. There's no mere refinement of natural capacities. We can't just start doing the right thing. And why we can't start doing the right thing is all throughout the Bible. I'm just going to read one verse. Uh, Somebody here, a man said this very well. God here is much more harsh than what this man was. Uh, Isaiah 64, 6 says, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. The polluted garment it's talking about there is uh, a dirty menstrual rag, right? The good things that people come up with are not impressive to God. You can't please your creator by doing good because your good isn't even good. See, the, the big problem with us is we generally think that on our worst day, God needed to die for us, but on our best day, we're okay, right? The problem is on our best day, we remind God of dirty menstrual rags, right? He's not impressed. He's seen better. At our very best, when we get up early and do the right thing and help an old lady on our way to work, and work really hard and go to church that night, unless we're believers, all those good things are looked at as evil by God. He is not 
looking at those things going, you've really done a good thing. Nice job. John Piper says it like this. The most important reality that decides the virtue of an act is God. If God says it's not good that you're doing something, it doesn't matter what you think. It doesn't matter how good you think you are. It doesn't matter how nice of a person you think you are. If you do something and God says it's not good, it's not good. So the question is, outside of God, can we do anything good? Should we all just, should people just do whatever they want? I mean, the answer to the question is kind of, right? Is it a good thing that atheists build hospitals? Is it a good thing that people that hate Jesus come up with cures for diseases? And the answer is kind of. It's good in that it helps humanity. It's good in that it, they could be spending their time doing something destructive, but it's not good in that they recognize that God is the most important being in the universe and they will do anything and everything to serve him because that's what good is, right? Good is recognizing that God has come as a man and saved me so I'll do anything for him. So if they can't come at the world, if they can't come with that worldview, good doesn't matter. Don't get me wrong, I'm, I would much rather they build hospitals than blow up mosques, right? I would much rather that. But at the end of the day, it's not going to be looked at any differently by God. And the reason is next. Actually, one more thing on this. The Pharisees in the Bible, who we give lots of grief to, were upstanding citizens who always did the right thing. They always did the right thing. I mean, they didn't always. But as far as we're concerned, like, we, we couldn't hold a candle to their righteousness. And Jesus looked at them and he said, you're a bunch of snakes. You are whitewashed tombs. You look good on the outside, but inside there's dead man's bones. He wasn't impressed. I mean, he, he was repeating what his father said in Isaiah, right? The good things that you do don't help. They're not helpful at all. And here's why. We'll go on to number six. Without faith, you can't please God. Hebrews 11, verse 6, and then we'll go to Romans 14, 23. Hebrews 11, 6 says, And without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Romans 14, 23, if you flip backwards just a bit, says it like this. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith, for whatever doesn't proceed from faith is sin. Well, that is, that is brutal. Whatever doesn't proceed from faith is sin. If we don't 
trust God, if we haven't placed all of our trust in who he is and what he's done, everything we do is sin. You know, I talked to, I remember talking to a guy at work a couple weeks ago, and he told me that his only vices were drinking and women. <laughs> Which, by the way, I'm, it, it's not like those are good, but like, oh, well, if that's all, you're in good shape. Uh, but anyways, the, the point is, no, no, it's not. Your only vices are 100% of everything you do every day. When you love your wife, you sin. When you drive to work, you sin. When you go for a run, you sin. When you sell a house, you sin. When you rake the leaves, you sin. When you mow the grass, you sin. When you talk to somebody, you sin. When you tell a lie, you sin. Yes, but when you tell the truth, you sin. Because everything that doesn't proceed from faith is sin. Everything. You can do no good apart from Jesus. Number seven. We can't see or enter the kingdom unless God does something. We're going to flip over to John chapter 3 for this. John chapter 3. Here we, we find Jesus talking to a, a Pharisee who was interested in Jesus, at least. Probably on his way to becoming a believer. But anyways, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus here. We're going to start in verse 3, and we'll go through 7. Jesus answered Nicodemus. He answered him and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is the that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. We are so tainted by sin, so corrupt at our very core, we can't even see the kingdom. We can't even see it. And it's so true, and, and we, we kind of know that this is true, right? If you talk to an unbeliever and you start telling them, you know, what's, you know, what's going on and how awesome uh, Jesus is and, and what you believe, and they just, man, they can't see it. They can't see. Their eyes are closed when it comes to the things of God. And it's true with every single human. Jesus said, unless you're born of the Spirit, unless the Holy Spirit comes and does something to you, you're not going to enter the kingdom and you can't even see it. If we can't see it, it's going to be hard to get in, right? We need God to do something. And the last one here is in the same vein, we can't come unless God draws us. These are again from the words of Jesus here. So we'll flip over to John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. This is our, our great indictment. 
the God of the universe came to his own and his own knew him not. Right? He came to the earth as a man to save all humanity and we killed him. Now I'm glad we killed him because that's how God intended it. But the fact is we had God in front of us and didn't recognize him. We couldn't see him. We wouldn't even come to be his friend except that Jesus said, my father draws you. And the same is true today. We won't come to him unless we're drawn. I mean, the whole, the whole of Scripture from Genesis 3 through the Revelation, we see not a manual for how to live, but we see a story of a God chasing down his bride. We see a story of a God chasing down people who can't see, who can't hear, who don't like him, right? We've got thousands of years of history of people just giving God the finger and God continuing to come after and come after and come after and us being unable to submit to him, being unable to say, all right, God, I'm in. I want to be your friend. Let's do this. And that really is the heart of the doctrine. Not that we're as bad as we could be, but that we're so affected by sin that we can do nothing but sin and we can't come to God on our own. So at this point, so what? Right? I mean, hopefully a bulk of you in this room uh, this isn't true about you anymore. You're Christians. Why would we take a Sunday morning and, and talk all about how bad you used to be? I'm glad you asked. You are so bad, so very undeserving, and so unsavable. John Piper says it like this, there is no full grasping God's saving work without seeing our true condition. The idea is, if you're already a believer, that this would rise up, that this would stir up worship inside of you. That you would see, oh my God, how you loved me, how you overtook me in my rebellion. You outran me, God. You outran me. I was running as fast as I could the other direction, and you outran me. If you're not a believer, it's a hope that you might hear, that the Holy Spirit might open your ears and you hear how wicked you are and know that you can do no good. And you might say, all right, Jesus, I, I want this. I want you. Right, so that's, that's the idea. Let me read you another verse here and then we're gonna close. Worship team, you can go ahead and make your way on up here if you want. I'm gonna go back to Ephesians 2 and I'm gonna finish the thought that Paul had as he was writing this letter. Ephesians 2, we're going to read 4 through 9 here. Remember, we started with the problem being, but man did this. We're going to end here with, but God. 
Actually, let me, let me back up and start with verse 3 so you remember where that was. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. God's wrath was heading towards us. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We're saved by grace now, so that in the coming ages, forever upon forever, he might continue to show us his grace. He provided a way of escape through the cross, but he goes even further by outrunning us and giving us this means of escape because we would continue to refuse him still except he loves us first. Let's pray. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for the cross. Thank you, God, that you outran me. God, I would have never stopped running. I would have never fully surrendered. Lord, I pray that you would outrun people here this morning. That those who are far from you, God, that you would, you would arrest them in their sin this morning. And those who know you, God, you would remind them of where you brought them from be glorified, God, as we sing here in this last song. In Jesus' name, amen.